you'd like to turn in your Bibles to the reading for this morning, for the message, it's found in James chapter 5, James's letter, chapter 5 and verse 13 to 18. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. But if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Pray that we will hear what God says. So James here in, uh, in chapter 5, 13 and following is really drawing to a conclusion. He's, he's, he's really tying things up and, and bringing the letter to a close. And we will conclude next week with verses 19 and 20. But here in verses 13 to 18, he really is going back to where he started. He's actually coming back to where he started the letter uh, and when he addressed if you remember in, in chapter 1, verses one and, or verses 2 to 4, those who were suffering. Remember, he is writing there to the diaspora, the, the, the Jews who had been scattered throughout the ancient Near East because of the persecution that had happened in Jerusalem. So James points out in chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, that we can be joyful in the midst of trials because the testing of our faith produces steadfastness and because steadfastness brings us to maturity in Christ. So when you have that focus, when that is what you're focused on in the midst of your trials, it changes the way you see things and it brings about growth for the glory of God in the midst of whatever, whatever it is that we're facing. So James said there in chapter 1 that if we lack wisdom, we should go to God in prayer and that the one who remains steadfast under trial, who has, stood, who has stood the test, will receive God's promised crown of life. So when we focus on eternity, when we focus on God in eternity and the promise that is waiting for us in Christ, it changes the way we face our trials. So instead of our trials pushing us down, it causes our, our trials in the power of God to lift us up and to change us and to make us more like Jesus. So the pattern was similar there in, in the context of this, of this particular verse, or this particular passage in, five, in chapter 5, verses 7 to 11, James calls us to patience and steadfastness. This isn't true just for the, the original recipients of this letter. This is every bit as true for us today in whatever trial it is that we are facing as it was for them in the early church. And there in that passage, he calls them to 
patience and steadfastness seven times there in verses 7 to 11. He does it also seven times in verses 13 to 18, our passage for this morning. So James is calling us to steadfastness in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trials. But he also has a word here in this passage for things, for those for whom life is going well. To those who are prospering, James says in verses uh, 127, in chapter 127, and also in chapter 2, verses 14 to 17, that we're to use our prosperity as an opportunity to bless those who are less fortunate. They're focusing on widows and orphans as being representative of people in general who are suffering. And he says there that that is true religion. It's true religion to care for those who are needy and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. He says that we're also not to covet the things of this world because those who make themselves a friend of this world make themselves the enemies of God there in chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. So life runs the gamut of emotions and situations. They go from extreme joy to horrible grief, from abundant blessing to deep suffering. So maybe you've come here this morning in the midst of a very, very difficult situation. Maybe you're suffering and you need some encouragement from the Lord. Sure, maybe wealthy landowners aren't dragging you into court and maybe your very life is not in danger because of the gospel, but maybe you're still suffering. And beloved, maybe you've come here this morning sensing that your world is full of trouble, that you seem to be going from one trial to the next to the next. And if that's true for you, then James has a word of encouragement for you here this morning. He's telling you to set your hope on God and to look forward to the next world. Or maybe you've come here this morning rejoicing. Maybe you've, you've come here this morning and just have a sense of, of that, that just life is going from one blessing to the next to the next. Well, James is telling you that you need to look to the Lord as well. James is telling you to seek God whether you are suffering or whether you're rejoicing. So whatever the case, however you've come here this morning, God's word has something for you because God's word points you to God. So James is telling us here to, to, to keep our eyes off of our circumstances and off of our our trials or our blessings, and to look up instead. To look to God and to rely on Him. And to actually see these things that we experience as opportunities. There are opportunities to go to God and to rejoice in God. Thomas Manton, the Puritan, said, is an excellent thing in religion to make use of present affliction, to use sadness to make us pray or happiness to make us give thanks. He said, the soul never works more sweetly than when it works with the force of some strong feeling. So when you have a strong feeling behind you, whether it's joy or suffering, let that be the wind in your sails that carries you to God. Your circumstances are not meant ever to be focused on in and of themselves. 
God's word gives us direction no matter what we're experiencing. Whether in precept or in principle, this, the, God's word shows us how we should respond to God's providence. Because all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. God brings his word to bear and enables us by the Holy Spirit, working in us his divine power to grant us all things that pertain to life and godliness. 2 Peter 1, 3. So James in our passages, passage this morning deals with four common states in life, four common situations that all of us are going to face from time to time. He talks about suffering, he talks about rejoicing, he talks about sickness, and he talks about sin. But the overarching theme of this passage is that of prayer. James here is exhorting his readers and us to pray in all of these situations. He mentions prayer in every one of these verses. He's calling us to pray no matter what we're facing. And it's common to, to have an exhortation to prayer, to prayer at the end of New Testament letters. It's there at the end of Romans, it's there at the end of Ephesians, it's the end of Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, as well as Hebrews, and right here in James. James is calling us to pray. He's telling us to seek God through prayer, to seek God in suffering, to seek God while rejoicing, to seek God in sickness, and to seek God in sin. But sometimes, maybe in the midst of, of the particular circumstance that you're in, maybe you don't even really know how or what to pray. Maybe you're feeling so dejected and so downhearted in the midst of whatever it is that you're going through that you feel like you can't even pray. I know that some of the most powerful and personal prayers that I have ever prayed have in the, been in the midst of, of, so, of sorrow and tragedy, and, and my, my prayer has just been, Jesus, help. Because there in the midst, in the, the bare bones of grief, my heart was, was laid bare before the Lord. But I think there's another powerful tool in Scripture that would help us to pray in the midst of whatever it is that we're facing. The Psalms. Because in the Psalms, you, you get a glimpse of the prayer life of the saints as they walk through life and face circumstances that were either horrific or joyful. They face trials and circumstances that are really, in some respects, not too dissimilar to the ones that we're facing. So we see their, their Holy Spirit-inspired prayers, and God would call us to read those and to actually pray those psalms. When I was in seminary, I, I took a, a class called Counseling from the Psalter, and this this particular class was geared, it was, it was a um, class that was led by, by Robert Borelli, he's a, a pastor from the New England area, and, and this whole class was geared towards taking the Psalms and helping, to, to, helping us to apply them to our lives and to the lives of those to whom we would counsel. 
And so you'll see when you study the Psalms that they're really divided into several classifications. So songs of lament, songs of, of praise, songs of trust, psalms of repentance. And I would encourage you to make the Psalms a regular part of your prayer life. To get on your knees and to pray with David or to pray with the sons of Korah. To pray those, those Psalms to your God. To study them for, your, for, for yourself and to appropriate them into your own life. So what I'm going to do at the end of, of each of these these sections in my sermon, I'm going to read a short, a short section from one of the psalms that would, would be characteristic of the psalm that the, the psalmist would pray in the midst of that circumstance. So first of all, first of all, James tells us to seek God in suffering. He starts out in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Now I'm going to spend most of my time here on this first point because because this first point actually incorporates the, the concept of, of sickness and sin. They're really subsets of suffering. They're areas of suffering. So I'll focus most of my time here on this first point. But what kind of suffering do you think James has in mind here? He says, is any of you suffering? And then later on, he lists the two different kinds. As I mentioned, he mentions sickness and sin. But I think here he is deliberately broad in his focus because this is the kind of attitude that he wants us to have in any type of suffering. And he just spent much of, of this letter, and certainly the immediate context, was dealing with the suffering of the righteous poor at the hands of the, the sinful wealthy. And so, so there's certainly that context in mind, but I believe it can be applied broader, and I think that's what James would have us do here this morning. Remember chapter 1-2, he says, Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Not just one kind of trial, but all kinds of trials. Now the word that James used there was, was testing. It, it referred to the testing aspect of our trials in the sense of, of the, that God is, is, is refining us in the midst of our trials. But suffering is a necessary part of this life. If you live long enough, you will suffer. You will suffer. And I believe that it's, it's my duty as your pastor to help prepare you for that suffering. So that when it happens, you're grounded you're grounded in your doctrine. You're grounded to know who God is in the midst of it. So that you're anchored to the rock of Christ Jesus. So that, that when that storm comes, when that storm comes, that you won't be blown away. You'll be one who will hear and do the word of God in the midst of that trial. Because it's in the midst of trials that what you really believe comes to the fore. It's, it's where you really find out who you think God is and who you think you are before God. And the best way that I can prepare you for trials is to point you to Jesus Christ. To point you to him. To point you to the gospel. 
to, the point, to point you to the truths of what God's word would say to us this morning, to point us to seek God, whether we're suffering or whether we're rejoicing. Jesus Christ is the founder of our salvation. And so just as he suffered, we too will suffer. Hebrews 2.10 says, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So Christ, although he was the perfect son of God, there was a, a measure to which his obedience was, was perfected or fulfilled in the suffering that he experienced. But I don't know why it is that we're surprised when we suffer. I don't know if it's because we've partially bought into the prosperity doctrine, thinking that because we're in Christ, we shouldn't suffer, or perhaps we feel like God owes us something. But in reality, we really should be surprised when we don't suffer. Because suffering is going to be the lot for those who are followers of Christ. If Christ was made perfect in suffering, so too his followers will be made perfect in suffering. If we're going to be, be like Christ, then suffering is a necessary part of our lives. Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. So if Christ suffered, his disciples will suffer. If you are his disciple, you will suffer. But we need to strive in the midst of it to keep our thoughts off of ourselves and off of our troubles and keep them fixed on God. Because when we focus on ourselves and our trials or even deliverance from our trials, we, we are robbed of what God would want to do for us and in us and through us through our trials. Let me say that again. To focus on ourselves and our trials or even deliverance from our trials is to rob ourselves of what God wants to do in us and for us and through us through our trials. Because you see, God wants us to get to know him better. And the best way often that God has for us to get to know him better is through trials, through those deep waters where we call out to him, where we're taken beyond the things that our strength could carry us through. And we're forced to go to God. And quite often, it's the people who have suffered the most deeply know God the most profoundly. When you think about, about the, an older saint who there on their deathbed feels a confidence that many other Christians just hope to have but could, couldn't have because they've lived a life of prosperity. Or think about our brothers and sisters who are, who are suffering persecution, horrible persecution around the world and the way that they have a holy confidence 
that we could only hope to have in this culture. Remember that what God wants to do, what God wants to do more than anything else is to cause you to know him intimately and to transform you, to conform you into the image of his son. You see, God's purposes are good. God's purposes are eternal. And he will work out his purposes in your life. Beloved, if you are here as a Christian, you have been called of God. You have been foreknown by God. You have been predestined by God to be conformed to the image of his Son. God's will will be done. And so we need to seek that above all things in the midst of our trials. Paul and Barnabas strengthened the souls of the disciples and encouraged them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God, Acts 14.22. Brothers and sisters, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So I'm encouraging us this morning to focus on what suffering will do for us. In this life, it's going to mature us. So we rejoice in our sufferings. Know that suffering produces character. Character produ- Endurance produces character. Sorry. We rejoice in our sufferings. Know that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit has been given to us. Romans 5, 3-5. Our suffering will also help us to let go of this life. Think of the heroes of the faith from Hebrews chapter 11 who desired a a better country, a heavenly one, and that God was not ashamed to, to be their God. And he has prepared for them a holy city. Brothers and sisters, God has prepared for us a holy city. Are you eager to go there? Are you eager to go there to be with God for all eternity? That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if in Christ we hope for our hope is in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. To be pitied. Think about the things that Paul suffered. So if his hope in Christ was only for this life, then he was to be pitied. But if his hope was an eternal hope, if our hope is to be an eternal hope, then we are the envy, the envy of all those who do not know Christ. James told us in verse 10 to look to the the prophets as an example of suffering and patience. And we think of Elijah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Isaiah and the horrible things that they suffered. But think also of the Apostle Paul. Five times he received 40 lashes last one. Three times beaten with rods. Once stoned. Three times shipwrecked. A day and a night adrift in sea. On frequent journeys. In danger from rivers. Danger from robbers. Danger from his own people. Danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship. Through many a sleepless night. In hunger and thirst. 
often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there was a daily pressure on him of his anxiety for the churches. And through it all, Paul learned to be content in every situation. He said, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in every and any circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, Philippians 4, 11 and 12. So what's Paul's secret? What was Paul's secret? He gave it to us in Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Brothers and sisters, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And sometimes it takes trials for you to realize that you can't make it on your own. It takes trials to bring you to the end of yourself, to help you to realize that you need to pray, that you are desperate for your God to be at work in your life. But sometimes, as I said at the beginning, sometimes you don't even know what to pray in the midst of suffering. Sometimes you're just, you're dumbfounded. You're at a loss. And in those times, maybe the most natural thing for us is to pray for deliverance. To pray that this particular suffering would end. And there's really nothing wrong with that so long as your request is submitted to the Lord's will. God, your will be done. And that is exactly what Jesus prayed in Gethsemane. He was suffering and he asked the Father for deliverance when he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Mark 14, 35 and 36. Now the Father didn't grant that request. The Father answered that prayer that Jesus prayed with a no. And we can be eternally thankful. Because it was due to that suffering that we can be saved. But I think the problem with, with many of our prayers in the midst of suffering is that they stop with a prayer for deliverance. Beloved, God has not promised you deliverance from trials. But he has promised you deliverance through trials. Through trials. So ask the Lord to to help you to grow in Christ's likeness. Remember, this is a promise. So ask the Lord to do it. Be specific. Say, Jesus, I want to be like you. Help me in the midst of this. And if your trial is at the hands of another person, ask the Lord to make you like Jesus in helping you to love that person and to forgive that person no matter what they've done, or no matter what they're doing to you. And you look to the example of Jesus and the way that he was persecuted even though he was completely innocent. He didn't defend himself. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. 1 Peter 2.23 Ask the Lord to keep you from anxiety. 
that you would not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And ask God that the peace which passes all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So there you're, you're getting your cues from Scripture. And you're praying Scripture. So now, while your life is, is, if your life is positive, focus on those things. Pray those things. Hide God's word deep in your heart so that when suffering comes unexpected, your reflex is to go immediately to those things. There's over 40 psalms that are referred to as psalms of lament. Over 40 out of 150. And Psalm 69 is an excellent example. It's, it's also a, a messianic psalm, which points directly to the sufferings that our Lord and Savior suffered. So if after the service you take your time and read through that psalm, there's many references exactly to what Jesus suffered. And some of the words of that psalm are right there on his lips. But verses 1 to 3 of Psalm 69 say, Save me, O God. For the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Is that your experience? Maybe that's your experience right now. Pray this. Pray this song. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. And quite often, those psalms actually turn into rejoicing, and that's true there in Psalm 69. The, the writer of the psalms begin by, by lamenting their condition, and their focus then comes to God and who He is. And they look to God in the midst of that suffering. And then they end up singing praise. And that is exactly what happens there in Psalm 69. David continues in verse 29, I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. And then in verse 34, Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. So David, as he looks to those trials, as he looks to God in the midst of those trials, he is well praise wells up in his heart and overflows into rejoicing in his God. But maybe you've come here this morning rejoicing. Maybe you've come here this morning walking on top of the world, so to speak. Well, God's word has a word for you here this morning as well. James goes on in verse 13: Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. So we're also to seek God while rejoicing. Seek God while rejoicing. If you're cheerful, sing praise, give thanks. Thanksgiving is another form of prayer. But while some people turn away from God when times are tough, I, I think far more people turn away from God when, when times are good. Think about the, the children of Israel. When they were suffering, they cried out to God. And then when they prospered, they turned away from God. And that is true so often, especially, I believe, here in our culture. 
Our culture is, is so prosperous that we've forgotten how much we need God. And so we need to, to, to cultivate a, a sense of, of thanksgiving in our hearts. Several years ago, I was convicted because of a, of a lack of thanksgiving in my life. And, and a lot of, of my prayers probably read more like a shopping list, thinking of things that I wanted. And I'd forgotten all the things that I had. I'd forgotten all the things that God had done for me, especially my salvation. And so I asked the Lord, help me, Lord, to be more thanksgiving, to give more thanks. That's a really good prayer to pray. Because sometimes God will also give you more things to be thankful for when you pray that prayer. But even more than that, he will cause you to rejoice and to be thankful. Because if you have Christ and nothing else, you have everything. You have everything. At least everything that you need. And God's done that in my heart. God has caused me to be more thankful. And when I, when I focus on those things, the, the circumstances of life, the, yes, they still have an impact. Yes, I still get rocked by things that happen. But they don't knock me off the rock. So we need to cultivate that. We need to give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, and His steadfast love endures forever. Now, we haven't done this before, but, but I'm going to try a bit of an experiment here. I would just like to, to give an, a quick opportunity for people to, to say thanks to God for something that he has done in their lives or that he is doing in their lives. So maybe just, just a, a few words or a sentence of what God has done for you. And you it, so please, just let's, let's a few of us take an opportunity just to stand up and give public thanks to the Lord for what he's doing. Who'd like to do that this morning? Who'd like to give thanks? Go ahead, Mark. Praise God. Thank you. Giving thanks for what God is doing in our midst in our church. Caleb? Thank you, brother. So, Caleb, also giving thanks for what God is doing in this church as, as people are taking opportunities to, to glorify God by serving and by being kind in the name of the Lord. Others? Go ahead, Dave. Thank you. 
Amen. Praise the Lord. Yeah, for those of you that don't know, David had a very serious illness. And he was in, in really rough shape there, and it looked pretty dicey there for a little while as far as his physical circumstances, but praise God that his spiritual circumstances were never in question from our perspective, let alone from God's. So brothers and sisters, we have so much to be thankful for. We have so much to be thankful for. And I know that, uh, that even just this past week, um, I was in, a, in a, a bit of a tight spot financially. And the Lord provided powerfully in fact, this is a residual blessing from something that the, the, the Lord provided five years ago. When, when I first started at seminary, um, I had misunderstood the, the wording of the, the seminary's fee structure, and, and it turned out that the classes that I was going to have to take cost twice as much as I thought I was going to. And, and I was praying, I was like, Lord, I, I really thought you were calling me to seminary. And uh, this, this sort of came to the, to, to the fore when I was down there for my first class in Louisville in, uh, in January of 2006. And, uh, and I, I prayed, I even filled out a little prayer card there in, a, in, a, in the prayer chapel at the seminary. And then when I came back, um, it had been my birthday when I was away, and I had a birthday dinner with my parents, and, and my parents said, John, uh, we, we've got a surprise for you. And they put a, a bank book um, on the table that had a balance of over $2,000. It was baby bonus money that I had thought that or they had completely forgotten about. And there it was. And that dropped me to my knees in prayer of thanksgiving for the Lord's blessing. But then the next day or a couple of days later, I went to check my bank balance for my account in Australia and there was $14,000 in there that had not been there previously. $14,000. And what had happened was there was raises that I was supposed to have been getting for the whole time that I'd been teaching, but that, that Education Queensland and I had missed. And so they paid that out to me in one lump sum. That is God's provision. Now, we might not have that opportunity to give thanks for that dollar amount but we can give thanks for the blood of Christ. The priceless, precious blood of Christ who has provided for all of our needs. So let's think about Psalm 116. This is my favorite Psalm in the Bible. Psalm 116, verses one and two. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call upon him as long as I live. God is faithful. God is faithful. So let's call upon him as long as we live. James goes on in verses 14 and 15. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So if you are facing a trial because of illness or physical pain, call on the elders of the church and they will pray for you. And the prayer of faith will save 
the sick person and their sins will be forgiven. Now, this verse is a controversial one. It's actually used as a, a proof text in the Roman Catholic Church for the so-called sacrament of extreme unction or last rites in which a priest anoints with oil a dying individual and forgives, so to speak, their, their sin. But brothers and sisters, no priest can forgive your sin except for Jesus Christ, our great high priest. And that extreme unction is given to a person that is dying. James here says that this person is, is saved and goes on to say healed. Now, it's true that, that as part of church discipline that, that sins can be pronounced forgiven, but that is never the authority given to one person. It's the, the church as a body that has that authority. But this verse right here, as I said, it, it, it shows that the, the tradition of extreme unction is baseless. It's baseless. This verse has also been used as the basis for, for so-called faith healers. We have churches with dedicated prayer rooms or healing, sorry, healing rooms right here in the city. Now, people go to these churches looking for, for a fix from whatever it is that ails them. They say something like, Lord, we're laying claim to this verse, or Lord, we're really believing in you for this healing. And they then demand that God heal them. Brothers and sisters, this is spiritual abuse. Because God has never promised healing from physical distress. God can heal. He often does heal. I've experienced that myself. And don't believe it, though, because I have that experience. Believe it because God's word says it. God is a healing God, and he still does heal. But quite often in these churches, when the person is not healed, they say, oh, well, you didn't have enough faith. But, the, but in the context there, the, the prayer, or the faith rather, is of the elders. So if the person is not healed, if that's what they're really laying claim to, it's the elders who don't have enough faith. But the, the healing does not come as a result of the faith. The power comes from God. And the faith is the faith to lay hold of God in the midst of that trial. Now, recently, a friend of mine who who's, was pregnant had some concerns that, that there was something wrong with the baby. And uh, the initial tests show that the, the baby might be born with, with dwarfism or, or Down syndrome. And she really showed a, a remarkable level of faith in, in the midst of that, being able to trust God through those circumstances. But in the ensuing weeks, the, the, the problem the problems seem to be getting worse. And, and the doctors were saying that the baby probably wouldn't survive. And she went to a, a so-called faith healer and demanded that the Lord heal the baby. And then a couple of weeks later, she didn't go to her regular church. She went to a, to a charismatic church where they, they, they prayed for her for, for a couple of hours that the baby would be healed. But as her confidence increased, my confidence waned. And I was concerned that she was so focused on, 
on the baby being healed in the midst of this that she was, was forgetting God and forgetting, forgetting what God was doing in the midst of this and forgetting to submit her desires to the Lord. And so these people, in promising that this baby would be healed, were promising something that they could never deliver. And in this case, they didn't deliver. That baby died. That baby died. And she's in the midst of the, of the grief for that in, in this very moment. Now, if you're pregnant and, and you're concerned about the health of your baby, come to the elders of this church and you better believe that we will pray for the health of that baby. And we'll pray for your health. But we're not going to stop there. We're going to pray that God would have his perfect will in your life. That he will use this to make you more like Jesus. That the prayer would be submitted, thy will be done. Thy will be done. And we're not going to go beyond what scripture promises as to the eternal state of that baby. We're going to have to trust the baby to God who judges rightly. We have to submit to the Lord and his will. So what does it mean, though, when we talk about, about elders coming and praying and, and anointing with oil? Now, we've done this, this a couple of times as a, as a group of, of leaders, as elders in the church. We've, we've anointed somebody with oil for healing. But the, the power there is not in the oil. The power is representative of the oil. And throughout the scriptures, the oil is representative of God's blessing. So we're praying that, that God would, would pour out blessing on this person. And the prayer is in the name of the Lord. Now, in the name of the Lord is not some kind of magical incantation that we tack on at the end of the prayer. Praying in the name of the Lord is praying that the Lord, that with the confidence that we have as the, as the children of God to go into the throne room of God, asking for God's healing for this person. And notice, though, it says here that the prayer of faith will save. Now, that's sozo in the Greek. That's the same word that, that we use for salvation, for spiritual salvation. And ultimately, we can be confident that whether the, this person is healed physically or not, that if they are in Christ, their sins will be forgiven and they will be saved. They will be saved. But when you're sick, when you're sick, where do you go? So often I, I believe that we see God as, as a last resort rather than our first port of call. So we'll only go to God at the end after the doctors have tried their thing and it hasn't worked. I think there of, of King Asaph, sorry, King Asa in, in 1 Kings 15.14. He's one who is described as, a, who as having a heart that is wholly true to the Lord all his days. But in 2 Chronicles 14, 2 and 5, he, he, he did the right thing in taking down all the, the altars and the, to pagan gods, and, and God gave him great victory against the Ethiopians. But at the end of his life, at the end of his life, he, he was diseased in his feet. 
And instead of going to God and trusting in God, he trusted in the physicians. And he died. So our trust needs ultimately to be in a healing God. Yes, God can use men to heal us. He can use medication to heal us. But our trust is ultimately in the Lord. It has to be in God's providence. In Psalm 38, 1-4, we read, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin, for my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. So this is a a cry out for deliverance for a physical torment that is as a result of sin. Now, of course, not all physical torment is as a result of sin. Paul prayed that the Lord would take the thorn in his flesh away three times, but the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So in God's sovereignty, God did not take away that pain. But, but there is no remote hint that his suffering was because of any form of sin. Sometimes physical illness can be simply so that God will be glorified, or as I said a moment ago, that God will transform us through the suffering that we experience. But there is suffering that comes as a result of sin. Sometimes it is directly because of sin, for example, cirrhosis of the liver in an alcoholic, or HIV in the, in the case of a, of a homosexual or somebody who is a, a drug addict or sexually promiscuous. And in those cases, we have a, of a clear link. But Scripture also talks about those who are sick and those who have fallen asleep because they take communion with a wrong heart. So there we have an example of of a sickness that can be as a result of sin. So there in James James 5.14, he says, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So here you have somebody who is is sick, and the elders will go to him and, and talk to him and say, is there anything, any unrepented sin in your life that you need to deal with? Is there anything outstanding between you and God or between you and your brother? And if there's something outstanding between you and your brother, there's something outstanding between you and God. Have you sought to make that right? And this person then prays with the elders and their sins are forgiven. But this is not just the the, the duty or the territory of elders in the church. It's the territory of all Christians. Look at verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Confess your sins to one another. Now, we don't confess our sins as we do to a priest. I know when, when, I, was a, when I was a child, my, my parents said that, that I would have made a good Roman Catholic because I was always going around confessing the things that I'd done wrong because I had, a, I had a guilty conscience. And my guilty conscience, I used to see as a curse because 
I could never get away with anything because I would always have to go and confess it. But I see it now as, as actually a blessing. And that conscience is still active, but it is, it is far more guided by Scripture. Our conscience is a guard, but it is not a guide. And I know of people who say, I don't feel any conviction or for, for what I'm doing. My conscience isn't giving me a hard time because of this particular thing that I'm doing. But it's not that it's okay. It's just that they've seared their conscience. And their conscience has stopped speaking to them because they, they can't hear it. So we need to confess our sins. To, to go to our brothers and sisters and say, and carefully, carefully, you don't go and broadcast your sins to everybody, but to a mature brothers or, brother or sister in Christ, wisely, men, if it's, if, if, especially if it's of a, of a sexual nature, going to other men or women to women, opening up with ourselves, with each other, confessing our sins to one another, not putting on an, an air of of piety, of being holier than thou, but being real with each other. And it says there that we may be healed. So there's a healing that will come through this process. That's a promise. Because the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like us. And he prayed that it wouldn't rain. It didn't rain for three and a half years. Then he, pray, then he prayed again, and the rain came. Now, I find great encouragement when I read that. Elijah was a man just like us. The Jews looked to him as being one of the, the most um, gifted or powerful prophets He's one of the, the few prophets we read about in Scripture that had a lot of miracles associated with, with his name. But remember what happened when he got word that Jezebel was coming after him. He was downcast. He was downcast. After calling down fire from heaven against the prophet of Baal, prophets of Baal. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was tired. He was a man just like us. But God heard his prayer. God is faithful. He hears our prayers. So we go to him in the name of Christ, not with any righteousness that is our own, but with an imputed righteousness. We come to him with the righteousness of Christ given to us. We wear Christ's righteousness like a robe, not, not, if we have willful sin in our hearts, because then we know that God will not hear us. If we regard sin in our hearts, God will not hear us. But if we are coming to God in prayer with a heart of obedience, with a heart of repentance, seeking God, praying that his will would be done in the midst of whatever it is that we're facing, we can trust. We can trust that his will will be done. For we ask in Jesus' name. Let's pray.